This I recall to mind. Therefore, I have hope. Uh, It's because of God's tender mercies we are not consumed. Great great are his his mercies. Uh, This I recall to mind. Therefore, I have hope. Let me me do this a little bit differently. Uh, It's through the Lord's tender mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are, they are new every morning. Abundant is his faithfulness. Uh, also in Romans, uh, we have a, a similar passage that says, Therefore, what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up as a substitute for us all, how will he, how will he not with him also freely do, uh, do all things? Let's take just a few seconds for spiritual preparation, uh, closing our eyes, bowing our heads, confessing, our, and then have the opportunity for a confession of sins. And then I'll open us in prayer. Dearly Father, we're thankful uh, again for this great nation. We're thankful for the blessings we have that you have provided uh, essentially because of our spiritual heritage. We often hear people praying for that you will bless the nation. Well, you have blessed the nation. It's a matter of what we are now doing with those blessings. We pray, Father, that uh, we would have a return to domestic tranquility here in the United States, we pray that there would be an understanding or an acceptance of the uh, the rule of law, so that we are not uh, uh, hampered by um, various factions, uh, disagreements, but instead uh, we would be unified behind the fact that we are uh, a nation that has a spiritual heritage and that we know that you are providing for us. We ask, Father, for your blessing upon our service tonight. Uh, Help us to understand the fact that wickedness is going to be judged, Father, and it's not just in the uh, future end-time judgment, but it's also judged uh, in time, uh, temporally here, because uh, anger and uh, uh, malice and hatred are not motivations that you honor. And we pray, Father, that we would uh, have a nation that is uh, motivated otherwise. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Before we begin tonight, I thought I'd show you just a couple pictures that uh, were sent to, uh, sent by John and uh, Valerie, this was their their house. I read a, a letter from John and Valerie Brown, who are missionaries to the Yanomami Indians down in northern, northwestern Brazil. And this was their the original house where they lived. Um, and according to Valerie, she felt that she had all the comforts of home. Now, I guess, depending upon what your home is, and you would say could have been I doubt that there were it was quite what we might expect but she was very very happy and pleased with it 
and you'll notice uh, one of their one of their uh, reservoirs of water was on this side. It looks like it's uh, held up high, but that was one of their reservoirs where they would have water and be able to have uh, running water in the house. Uh, this was is the house that they have now. This was a house that was built by John when they moved to the new location where they are in uh, in still on the reservation with the the Yanomamis, but uh, sitting up in the house, I believe that is Valerie and John, uh, and then they have some of the natives sitting there with them, and then on the lower step, all the way at the bottom. Uh, I think that's uh, is David. This was a picture that was sent um, of their pet sloth, and if it looks like I've got it upside down, it, if it if it if it looks like it's upside down, it's not. That's how sloths sleep, and that's one of their favorite perches. So he is uh, holding himself on that rafter and uh, enjoying life, I guess you could say. Um, one of the reasons, uh, I don't know if we've actually got uh, started uh, corresponding yet, but uh, we decided to call it, instead of snail mail, we call it sloth mail, sending it back and forth, because uh, according to John, I don't know that I've ever been around a sloth, an actual sloth, um, but I understand sloths move very slowly. They just really take their time. No rapid movements. So here's Sid the sloth. Uh, I guess you could say he's hanging in there. And then this is uh, George the monkey, if I'm not mistaken. George the monkey, he was uh, in one of their original pictures that they were sent, that we sent, and this is Olaf with his pet, uh, pet monkey. I remember uh, the first time I saw George, it was in the picture. I actually brought the, the card they have, and I, I'll pass it around. But this was one of the original cards that uh, the Browns had, and I should have dropped it to a uh, slide as well, but it's, I think most of you have seen it, but it's a picture uh, when Olaf was still pretty young and uh, in the picture is not only John and Valerie and Olaf but uh, but George and uh, I always thought that was a great a great picture alright uh, now we're heading back into uh, Zechariah Zechariah of the twelve prophets fame uh, God's encouragement and comfort, God's future plans for his people. Uh, and the final part of this is the prophecy of the coming king. We are in the midst of the eight visions. And the next vision that we have is the vision of the woman, uh, the woman in the basket. And this is in chapter 5. Chapter 5 and chapter 6 have the last three visions of the of the eight and all five of them uh, reveal judgment they are uh, they reflect judgment we could say um, 
And we saw last week uh, in, in verses 1 through 4 that we have this flying scroll. And I was uh, trying to describe the flying scroll and what it would be like. And um, Scott came up with an example because I was calling it a, 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 like a bulletin board. And he said it would be like, since this is a flying scroll, it would be like an airplane that was towing a message uh, behind it. And that's probably as good an example. Um, you have an airplane that's flying along. And by the way, sometimes in the wind or simply because of the huge drag of the uh, the banner, thank you, the banner behind it, uh, the airplane doesn't really make much progress in the air. It's kind of just hanging up there, flying along, which gives a lot more uh, visibility to the banner and, and the message on the uh, the banner. But that's the idea of this, uh, uh, the flying scroll. And while we're not told, uh, you know, what was actually on that scroll, we know that uh, it the idea was is that uh, judgment was coming. And then when we begin in verse 5, where we are tonight, we have the, uh, the angel again who talked with me, came out and said to me, uh, therefore, uh, Zechariah is continuing. He's continuing with this, these visions, one right after another. I believe they happened in the same night. And this one is going to specifically focus on the uh, punishment of wickedness, the judgment of wickedness. Wickedness is going to be judged. Therefore, in verse 5, vision 7, Then the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, Lift your eyes now and see what this is that goes forth. So I asked, What is it? And he said, it is a basket that is going forth, or the actual Hebrew word here is an ephah. And an ephah is a measuring container, we could say. And uh, the general size of it, about the only thing we have maybe in comparison to it would be like a bushel basket. That's how it's, why it's described here as a basket. He also said, this is their resemblance or appearance throughout the earth. I'll have to do a little work on that because otherwise it doesn't make much sense. Here is a lead disc, and the disc, lead disc is a cover. And we would say that this basket, uh, and it's like a bushel basket, had a lid on it, had a cover. And the lid is open so that we can see inside it. Uh, here is and it's made of lead uh, this metal here is a lead disc a cover lifted up and this is a woman sitting inside the basket so we have the personification here uh, of something and it's represented by this woman then he said this is wickedness so the woman herself is not wickedness. She represents wickedness. We say um, she is personifying wickedness. And he, the uh, interpreting angel, thrust her down into the basket, into the ephah, 
and threw the lead cover over its top, over its mouth. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings. Interesting word here for wind, ruach. Um, There are several translations for this word. One is spirit, one is wind, and another is breath. And here the wind uh, in their wings seems to be... Uh, a fine translation, but it very all also could very easily be the spirit in their wings, meaning that it is the spirit that is providing the uh, the lift or the power, the authority for them to fly or for them to act. And it says there were two women coming with wind or spirit in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork. Uh, This is very interesting uh, because a stork, in uh, as far as the Mosaic Law is concerned, is seen as unclean birds. But they also have large wings, and so uh, that may very well be what we have here. Like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the ephod, or the basket, between earth and heaven, uh, again, we have this this phrase is probably an idiom. Verse ten says, "So I said to the angel who talked with me, the interpreting angel, where are they carrying the basket?" And he said to me, "To build a house for it in the land of Shinar. Land of Shinar would be in the area of Babylon. When it is ready, the basket will be set there on its base." Now trying to determine uh, this wickedness being lifted up between heaven and earth is somewhat answered by the fact that uh, there is a future place for it even though uh, Zechariah is seeing this in his vision that it's being lifted up and carried There's not; it's not going to arrive and it's not going to have the house built until a future time and I think that is the uh, the understanding, the picture that we have here with uh, this basket. Now, of of the visions, uh, this vision seven sort of has the reputation of being the more difficult uh, to interpret. Uh, it has more difficult uh, uh, parts for it to be understood. And um, we really see that it probably, uh, one of the reasons that it's uh, difficult to understand is because it has more moving parts or more pieces to it than most of the other visions. And also because what we see in this vision, uh, we can't go to other parts of the Bible and say, all right, we know what uh, how ephods uh, have been used before or maybe how storks have been used before or this lead lid has been used. So there's some reasons why it's difficult and it causes some problems for interpreters. But I think we can get pretty close tonight to what we need to know. Uh, so we see in verse, back in verse 5, that again it's the, the uh, interpreting angel that is going to need to interpret this for 
uh, Zechariah. Uh, some of the other uh, visions he may have been able to come fairly close to, but uh, again, he's somewhat, um, we could say, bumfuzzled by this. Uh, verse 5 says, And the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, Lift up your eyes now and see what this is that goes forth. Verse 6, So I asked, What is it? And he said, It's a basket. It's an ephod. And I think one of the reasons it's used, uh, it's the ephod is used, and we'll see this in some of my explanation, is that the ephod is often used for measuring. And it's me- measuring for, uh, in the uh, marketplace, uh, it's used for uh, measuring grain and for carrying grain and of that sort. And probably that's why it's used here. And it says it's going forth. And he says, this is their resemblance throughout the earth. Now, uh, again, uh, we're starting here with an ephod, and it's a familiar uh, unit uh, uh, for um, what we would call commerce, I think. Um, And it's normally about five gallons. There are those who would say, this is kind of interesting, uh, the normal-sized ephod. Uh, if it was a normal sized ephod a woman wouldn't be able to fit in this it's a little bit larger and we don't have an answer for that whether it's a little bit larger or if the woman was seen as a lot smaller um, we don't know that but the reason that uh, the ephod is at least used we believe is because uh, there is a sense that in Israel at this time and uh, certainly in the past there has been um, uh, mercantile greed and uh, a lot of uh, of mischief, we could say, in measuring. And we'll get to that here in a moment. Um, but the word here that I think needs to be some ex- needs to be explained is the word resemblance. Uh, appearance is used, I think, in the New American Standard Bible. But the word resemblance. Uh, should be translated I because that's exactly what the word is. <clears throat> it's just that we in the New King James Version and the New American Standard Bible we have sort of an interpretation uh, of this word instead of a translation and if we were given the word I we would at least know that this is their I throughout uh, the earth. And the the way that we need to to see the word I here is that uh, Zechariah has used this phrase throughout the earth three previous times. And I think that is going to be an interpretive key for us. So in chapter 1, verse 10, we see that there was a man who stood among the myrtle trees and he answered and said, these are the ones, these are the writers whom the Lord has sent to and fro throughout the earth. And the reason he sent them to and fro throughout the earth is in the uh, uh, the understanding of cavalry. They are the eyes and the ears of the army and therefore they are the they would bring back information well this as we as we mentioned when we studied chapter 1 would be equivalent to god's omniscience so that god knows everything that's going on he has 
we could say eyes on everything. And therefore, uh, this has the sense of, again, omniscience or knowing what's happening. So we see it in, uh, in verse 10. We also see it used again in verse 11. So they answered the, the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all is quiet. And therefore, it's used there twice. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 10, we actually see probably a bit more information because it says, For those who had, for, for who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. Therefore, I think the eye here that is moving to and fro throughout the earth is the understanding that that it's conclusive or we have um, it's a formula that tells us of the uh, the omniscience or the complete understanding that we have here um, he says uh, open your eyes and see what you see what is it it's a basket that goes forth and therefore this is going to be complete when it's finished uh, the gathering uh, there is there this eye uh, throughout the earth meaning that uh, the omniscience of God understands what's happening and we're going to see this woman in the basket it's going to be complete completely gathered it's going to be gathered up from the uh, from all the earth uh, uh, a third point that I'd like to make here is that this is likely uh, um, <clears throat> that the that the evil again actually my third point was that the evil is going to be gathered uh, from the entire earth because the the evil that is uh, that is there is widespread uh, and point four the use of a measuring basket here is symbolic of what we would probably call the commercial evil uh, that's in the land of Israel and uh, the uh, the difficulty that Israel was having here and I think again the reason that we have the ephod uh, is because of the greed and this was very appropriate uh, let's let's take a look at this uh, first of all one of the reasons that um, uh, that discipline or punishment came to Israel in the form of their exile destruction and exile was because of greed and in Amos, the the book of Amos, chapter 8, we see this. Turn in your Bibles to Amos. And Amos chapter 8 is uh, back just prior to um, Daniel, Hosea, uh, Joel... Amos, Obadiah is where we find this. But this is Amos chapter 8, and we see this in verse 5. And you'll notice in verse 5 it says, um, let me go to verse 4. Hear this, 
you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fail, saying, when will the new moon be passed? In other words, uh, this was uh, a festival time, but the, the new moon would need to pass for them to get back to their business ventures. It says, when will the new moon be passed that we may sell grain? In other words, they want to get back into their business ventures here. And the Sabbath, they want the, the Sabbath to pass that we may trade wheat, making the ephod small and the shekel large. What they're saying here is that they were cheating. They were cheating by making the the size of the basket, the ephod small, and also the shekel large, meaning that the the, uh, the purchasing power that they had or the money that they would get for that would be would be much, falsifying the scales by deceit, and that was another way that they uh, managed to cheat people. Now let's that is prior to the fall of Jerusalem. But now let's look. Let's go back to Nehemiah. Remember that Nehemiah, Ezra, and Nehemiah are occurring at the same time that we have Haggai and Zechariah. So in Nehemiah five, turn to Nehemiah five. Nehemiah comes a little later than. Ezra, but it's at this same time. And in Nehemiah 5, keeping your finger in Zechariah, if at all possible, uh, we see that there is an outcry of the people. And again, this is almost at the exact same time that uh, uh, Haggai and Zechariah were prophesying. Verse 1 says in Nehemiah 5, And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. The people here in verse 1 are the poor, refers to the poor that were in the land, but their Jewish brethren are the nobles, uh, the, uh, the rulers who are taxing them and levying uh, fees upon them. And then it says, we're going to see that there are actually three different groups here, three groups that are crying out. First of all, for there were those who said, we, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There's a shortage of grain, and even if there wasn't a shortage of grain, it was so expensive they couldn't purchase it. They weren't able to purchase it for for their sons and daughters. Uh, Verse 3 then introduces us to the second group. There were also some who said, we have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. Well, in order to get grain, they had to sell off parts of their property. They had to mortgage their property. And the uh, those who had the grain were... Uh, requiring such high prices or they were requiring them to sell their lands to buy the the grain. And then in verse 4, we see the third group. There are also those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. 
Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. What they are saying there is that the king's tax, of course, is heavy, but then even within the land, the nobles and the princes, those who were ruling them, were requiring them to borrow money in order to pay this. And uh, you can tell that it's coming from uh, other from Jewish nobles because it says uh, yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren in other words we have, we're of the same lineage the same uh, tribes our children are their children or as their children and indeed we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves and some of our daughters have been brought into slave, uh, sold into slavery we would say here so this is these are the conditions that were ongoing and the problems that they were having very often was in the, the greed in the marketplace, uh, the, the commercial greed. So uh, I think that's one of the, the basic reasons that we have this use of the, of the ephod. Um, we're going to see that uh, we probably don't want to just assume that it is only mercantile greed, but it's being associated with that. Now in verse 7, Here, behold, is a lead disc, or a, a lead lid, lifted up, and this is a woman sitting inside the basket. First of all, uh, the first thing we have here is that almost all of the grammar in here, in this this. Uh, vision when we have the word this and that is feminine and i think one of the one of the reasons we have that is that the the word for wickedness here it's an abstract noun but in uh, new testament greek as is excuse me in uh, new testament greek as in uh, hebrew uh, grammar we have uh, masculine and uh, feminine genders and wickedness here uh, has a feminine ending and therefore um, that's not to say that, uh, that those things which are feminine are wicked it's just how the, the language uh, plays out in Hebrew and therefore the line of thought here is that um, what's happening in this vision is represented by wickedness and therefore we have these feminine endings. Uh, also, the Bible represents wickedness with spiritual adultery or spiritual harlotry and therefore this is that's I think another reason why this woman is used uh, and that is no more a condemnation of women than uh, the men who would patronize them, but it's simply a fact that in the uh, in the Bible, very often uh, idolatry is seen as spiritual uh, adultery, and that's why we have that represented this way. Now, secondly, here under point seven or under verse seven, uh, the material of which the measuring basket was made is not identified, but the lid 
is said to be made out of lead. And I think that's the idea is that there's going to be this, when this lid closes, it's heavy and it's going to be secure. So when wickedness is pushed down in, it's going to be secure. Uh, it says, uh, when the cover was lifted up, the woman was observed inside and she's identified as wickedness. Uh, fourthly here, the woman uh, is the personification of sin, the personification of wickedness. And we're going to see that this uh, wickedness, I think, is really the, the accumulation of uh, not only uh, the, the mercantile part of it, but we also see uh, the civil and ethical and religious evil that's sort of all mixed together here. Um, the removal of wickedness will not only occur during the end times, or excuse me, the removal of wicked, well, the removal of this wickedness is only going to occur during the end times, during the time of the tribulation. And that's why this vision is going to be of comfort to uh, the Jews at that time, because the wickedness that was uh, that was oppressing them is going to be removed. Now, it's not going to be removed necessarily uh, in total uh, for a long time, but we know that God does uh, does punish wickedness. But here, what we're seeing is the the prophecy that this is going to occur at the end times. Uh, and that would certainly be an encouragement to those Jews, mostly because they anticipated the end times uh, not to be that far off. Verse 8 then says, Then he said, This is wickedness. And he thrust her down in the basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth. Um, one of the things that I like about this verse is that the use of the word threw, uh, and I think he threw her down into the basket and threw the cover over its mouth. And I think what this demonstrates is the authority, the power of, uh, and the, the uh, ultimate uh, effect of this uh, gathering of, the, of wickedness and holding it. Uh, notice that this wickedness, the woman, is dangerous. And no sooner does the... Uh, the interpreting angel identify the woman as wickedness then he he contains it he captures it uh, the basket the ephod here is not only a a basket to uh, represent wickedness but it's also a container it's a cage uh, since an ephod was used to transport grain or could even be a liquid if it's uh, uh, sealed, but it's going to be used here to transport this wickedness. Uh, and I think the urgency of the uh, the angel to accomplish this is seen in the words also. He threw her into the basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth. Uh, Verse 9 says, Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings, for they had wings 
like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. Now, once the containing of the woman is achieved, in other words, the imprisonment of it, then the ephod now is going to be, it's going, there's going to be uh, the removal of it. It takes wing, we would say, and it begins its flight. Um, and the wings here are not actually those of two women, but they're, they're described as stork-like. And I have to tell you that there is much discussion. There's been a lot of ink spilled on the, uh, the two factors that we have here. Uh, why two women and also why the wings of a stork? And I don't know that I'm going to be able to convincingly answer this question, but uh, it appears here that the two women are being used uh, mostly because there is a, a sense here of, uh, of care being taken with the wickedness that's being removed. Now, some, some, there is some discussion whether these two women are actually angels. And most theologians come to the conclusion that since the text doesn't identify them as angels, that they are not. And I think one of the convincing uh, arguments for that is that the Bible uh, uh, tries to... to uh, uh, teach or indicate that there's no sexuality in uh, the angelic host. And therefore, if we would have uh, an indication of both male angels and female angels, then we'd have this sense that uh, amongst the, the heavenly host there is uh, sexuality. And the Bible goes, I think, uh, quite a ways to try to demonstrate that that's not the case. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ tells us in the New Testament that angels don't marry. There is no uh, gender amongst uh, angels. Now, whenever angels appear, they always take on the image of a man. But I think that's only because... Um, the uh, a, a gender or an appearance needs to be selected, and also uh, men in the Hebrew and the and Jewish culture are simply uh, the leaders. The uh, uh, the uh, the head of the family, and so that's another reason why they're they're identified that way. Here. Uh, the, neither the uh, the angel nor is there an interpretation of them as being angels. The text just continues to address them as being women, and so I think I'll just uh, I'll just stay with that as well. Now, the stork of being an unclean bird uh, is possibly used here because of the wickedness, the, the fact that the uh, the wickedness is seen to be truly evil. It's not only uh, uh, 
the mercantile evil, the greed that's there. But we're going to see that the uh, the ephod is being transported to Babylon, to a place that is uh, often seen as the source and maybe even the uh, the headquarters for wickedness. Um, now, notice here it also says that they are being lifted up in the basket between heaven and earth. And as I stated, I think the understanding of this is that the wickedness is going to be uh, captured at a particular time and it's going to be transported to to Babylon. We're going to see that. We've already read Shinar. But uh, it's going to be taken there and deposited and then later at a later time it's going to be destroyed uh, and I think that that's the understanding of it sort of being between heaven and earth now point or verse 10 says so I said to the angel who talked with me where are they carrying the basket and verse 11 verse 11 says and he said to me to build a house for it in the land of Shinar when it is ready the basket will be set there on its base so you'll notice that it's going to be a while before it's it's ready to be placed there. Um, and I don't think that this means that uh, there's going to be a gathering of the wickedness uh, well in advance and then contained because we know that that's, that doesn't seem to be the case. But the idea is that this wickedness that's contained is not going to be contained until a future time. Now, uh, Several points under uh, at the end of this uh, vision. First of all, the two unidentified women with great wings like those of the stork transport the ephod to the country of Babylon, to Shinar. Uh, secondly, I think one of the reasons that Babylon... Well, there's probably at least two reasons why Babylon is chosen... And first of all, is that that is the location from which Israel has just departed. Uh, they were in exile in Babylon, and that was the uh, the site of their, uh, what we would call, their discipline or their judgment. And so Shinar is chosen because Babylon uh, had not only been uh, the the nation that conquered them, but they also had turned into um, quite a an evil nation themselves. Uh, secondly, well, second, uh, well, thirdly here, uh, this lends support to the view that the city of Babylon, which is on the Euphrates the Euphrates River, is going to be rebuilt, and when it's rebuilt, it is going to become the site or the center for wickedness. Now, to help us understand this, I want to turn to two passages, one in the Old Testament and one in the New. Uh, just keeping your finger in Zechariah, let's look at Genesis 11.2. In Genesis 11.2, we have our first view of Shinar or of Babylon. And very often, uh, the way a word or a location is used originally, uh, that sort of sets the standard for it throughout the rest of the Bible. 
And in Genesis 11, 2, it says, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech, one vocabulary. And it came to pass, as they, these are the people that departed from the ark, and as they multiplied, they traveled, they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, in in Babylon. And they dwelt there, and they said one to another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. And then, of course, in verse 5, we see that the Lord has taken note of what they're doing, and, of course, he's not pleased. Uh, This is our first indication of what we would call sort of a corporate uh, movement against God because God had said to scatter on the face of the earth and uh, what they are to be doing was to, to be glorifying to God. But here we see those who are gathering at Shinar are going to try to glorify themselves. They want to make a name for themselves. So that's the first time we're introduced to Babylon. Now let's go to the end of the Bible in Revelation. Revelation 17. In Revelation 17, we see Babylon at the end of the tribulation. Not quite the end of human history, but at least at the end of the tribulation when we have this explosion of wickedness. And in Revelation 17, verse 3, we read... So he, and this is one of the angels, uh, carried me away in the Spirit, or by means of the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, into the wilderness. And I saw a woman, and this is the cosmic system, really, sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and seven horns. And again, the use of of the woman here is not so much that uh, women or uh, females are being targeted. It's just the idea that uh, wickedness was was often represented as spiritual adultery and, and could be seen in fornication and things of that nature. Well, it says that this was, it had the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and, and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, uh, indicating wealth and power, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Here we have this idolatry, spiritual uh, fornication is idolatry. Verse 5, And on her forehead a name was written, Mysterious Babylon the Great the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Now, probably a little bit better translation here in verse 5 is on her head. A mystery name was written, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Well, this gives us the picture of how Babylon is represented in the Bible. It begins its existence uh, as the corporate center 
of evil and wickedness, and it's going to end uh, with its destruction because it is also seen as the cosmic resistance, the Satan's sort of, uh, again, it's the corporate headquarters for resistance. Um, but it's not just uh, mercantile. It is spiritual and uh, political, every type of wickedness that you can encounter here. And so that's what we have as we see Babylon represented. That's why this uh, uh, ephod gathers up the wickedness and takes it back to its source. So a fourth point that I might make is that Israel's corporate, mercantile, or commercial sin, which we can describe here as greed, is also associated with idolatry because Babylon is associated with Babylon. And it's going to be removed from Israel. We're taking it out of Israel. Uh, the phrases here that uh, Zechariah uses, it says to build a house for it, I think means that there's going to be some sort of a, a temple for it. It's not just a location. We're not just building a city, but we're building uh, some uh, sort of a place where there's going to be a temple. And I think that what we've seen in the past is that uh, leaders like to make uh, uh, statues of themselves. And there's going to be a... Uh, Babylon is going to be one of the great centers here that has uh, uh, statues to... Uh, human leaders, uh, possibly even uh, the Antichrist or others that serve him. But we do know later on uh, he is going to raise his own image in the temple in Jerusalem. Um, I think returning, uh, a sixth point we could make here is returning wickedness, the wickedness of idolatry and uh, greed to its place of origin sets the stage for its destruction at the end time. And that's what we see in Revelation 17 and 18 is that um, uh, Babylon is going to be destroyed. Uh, also, as we sort of close this out, um, I might make a seventh point, uh, and that is that Zechariah is then going to say that what we have here is that it's going to be set, the, uh, the basket is going to be set on its base. And uh, this represents then the historic rebellion against God. Um, God has uh, indicated that there are divine institutions, that there are establishment principles, um, and that God's way is the only way but Satan of course has his way and he believes that uh, he can uh, rebel against God that he would be able to rule the world uh, just as successfully as God has but God is now going to take uh, this rebellion uh, this uh, satanic cosmic uh, evil and place it back where it started and then at the end of time it's going to be destroyed so uh, evil came from Babylon and 
as it were, it's on its way back to Babylon where it's going to be destroyed. And therefore, as we sort of close close out uh, Vision 7 here, again, uh, chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, we have the flying scroll, which is uh, a report that here we have the perjurer and also the the thief are going to be judged. We saw that the those who were violating the law, uh, the Godward part and the manward part of the law, were going to be punished. But that was uh, Israel that was violating the Mosaic law. Here we have wickedness gathered up. Uh, the uh, still, I think the sense is here is it's focused on Israel. And all of that wickedness is going to be purified from Israel so that the land is now purified, wickedness taken back to Babylon, it's going to be destroyed. So that's, that's our second uh, vision of judgment. And then when we get to verse 1 of chapter 6, we're going to see sort of a throwback to our first vision, which was the horses that were traveling to and fro throughout the earth, um, uh, keeping an eye on what was happening, we could say, uh, God's vision of what was occurring. And at that time, there is, during human history, uh, everything is somewhat under control. But we're going to see that in the end times, things are out of control. And that's why we get to ch- to our last vision. And the last vision, vision eight, is going to be the vision of the four chariots, the four chariots that are moving throughout the earth. And we'll come back next time and take a look at these four chariots. But the four chariots are going to put sort of a final touch on the the judgment on the earth. And then we're going to see uh, a reference to the Messiah when we get to chapter 6 as well. So... Um, Next week, we'll finish the eight visions and maybe even have a chance to move on into um, this reference to the branch. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we know that human history has an end point. We're, this is not just a, uh, a time of, evol- of evolution and continuing endless uh, linear uh, or cyclical maybe that's a better word cyclical uh, history but Father uh, it, there is an end time and it's something that you have planned it's something that is absolutely going to occur and it's going to occur in your timing and when it does occur it's going to be uh, truly, truly final from the standpoint of Wiping out the evil that is in uh, that is in human history now. That's not to say that Satan is not going to be able to resurrect it even at the end of the millennium. But uh, prior to transitioning into the millennium, there's going to be a uh, a requiring of those who are involved in wickedness. Um, but Father. We know that there is a requirement of of judgment for wickedness even yet today. And we pray that uh, as we uh, go about our lives, that we would honor you, that we would uh, glorify you in 
realizing that you have a plan for our lives, and that plan is to be carried out uh, according to uh, biblical mandates. Otherwise, Father, we will find ourselves in a position to be judged as well. Uh, therefore, we ask for your blessing, Father, upon uh, again upon our nation, upon our leaders, uh, upon the uh, the nation as a whole, that we would be obedient to uh, the divine establishment principles that you have given us, those institutions, and restore uh, a a much healthier understanding of. Uh, marriage and the family and the nation. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.